There is a particular moment in my life that I know I will never forget. It was about two days after my first child was born, and I remember standing in the hospital room holding my daughter when the nurse walked in and looked at us and said, all right, everything looks good, your discharge paperwork is done, you guys are clear to go home. And I remember this because I was terrified. As a young 20-year-old something, at that moment, something came over me where I realized, wow, I am now the one responsible for this child. It was a pretty drastic moment in my life where I realized that there was, in that particular moment, a very big difference between becoming a father and being a good father. I realized that the moment that my daughter was born, yeah, I became a father, That was pretty simple for me, not simple for my wife, but simple for me. The moment I became a father, quite simple, there I am, I'm a father, but now I was given the burden, the responsibility of taking this child home and being the person to care for her, to raise her, to disciple her, to challenge her, to to direct her in her lives, and now the weight of that responsibility for me to be a good and effective and useful father now all of a sudden came over to me. I knew that in the moment that I became a father that, that, that that's the way it was going to be, but that didn't necessarily mean that I had all the characteristics necessary to be effective at my task. And my daughter had, uh, she should have some level of expectation of what a good father does. And God, of course, plates on my shoulders the responsibility uh, for the blessing that he's given me to be a good father. Just because I am a father doesn't mean I have all the characteristics, all the qualities, all the attributes necessary to be a good father. And so it was in that moment when I was standing there and they said, it's, it's time for you to go home, that I felt that difference, that there was a clear discernible difference and that there was a lot of work ahead of me, a lot of effort, a lot of time, a lot of energy, that it wasn't just going to happen overnight that I wasn't just going to go home and have everything that I needed to be a good and effective father, that now Now the path had begun. In much the same way as that is our Christian life. It's not overly complicated to become a Christian. It's quite simple in some regard. You repent of your sins, you place your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the work that he did for you on the cross, and now you are a Christian. But what's the difference between becoming a Christian and being a good Christian, an effective Christian, a useful Christian, a fruitful Christian. There is a distinction between those two things. And it doesn't just happen the moment you become a Christian, now you are effective, now you are useful. No, there is a gap. There is work to be done to go from point A to point B. All of us should have the desire, not just to be followers of Jesus Christ, but to be a good, effective, fruitful, and useful followers of Jesus Christ. And so we're grateful because God does not leave us to guess what does that look like? How do we accomplish this? What does it look like for us to grow in this regard so that we would be effective and useful for him? His word is clear to us that there are a set of core attributes, qualities, traits that we should have as Christians that will cause us to be more effective. And so if you'd like to hear from God, this morning on what those traits are and how you and I can become better, more effective Christians. This morning, please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 is where we're going to be at this morning. And right out of the gate, you have the statement from Peter here that's going to cause us to pause and reflect back on what he's already said. He says, for this reason... She's going to cause us to stop and re-examine what did he just say. And as we look back, you can pop up to verse 1 in that same chapter, chapter 1, and see who this letter is addressed to. Peter is addressing this letter to believers. Those that he has confidence in already have accepted the grace of Jesus Christ, repented, and placed their trust and faith in him. He, he says that clearly. This is to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. He's, he's real clear that, that the people that are hearing this, they are aware that it's known to them that their faith 
Their acceptance with God comes via the righteousness of God, apart from works, and that they have received it. And there's no hierarchy in this whole justification, salvation process. It's the same standing as the apostles, as Peter, the chief apostle himself, you are one with Christ, justified. It's for that reason, and as he continues on in verse 4, he says, and now because of that, you've, you've become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What is he saying here? He's saying all of you have an awareness as believers that your former state, your former state post-Genesis 3 was one where you were corrupted. You were given to sin. You fell into sin. You were a slave to sin. But now, through your connection with the righteousness of Christ, through his work, through faith in him, now you've escaped that corruption and you are now partakers with him of that divine nature. That nature where now you are not enslaved to that, but you can pursue God and the things he asks you to do. You can grow in holiness. You could be more Christ-like. Because of this, because of the gospel, because of the reality of what it means to be saved, knowing what Christ has done for you, now there is something that Peter wants us to do. And for us as a church, we should think about the gospel and we should think, what an amazing thing that God has done for us. Just without any work of our own, he has saved us and he has redeemed us. That now, what does that require of us? And he says it this way. For this very reason, for all that, make every effort. It's an imperative command to us now that we are to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours, you possess them, and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us, if, if you want to be an effective Christian, there is a list of traits, a list of qualities that you need to possess and grow in so that you can do the work that God has designed you to do. Now, I think for us as we read this, we, we, we get this word right out of the gate. We, we understand, okay, we're saved, we understand the gospel. It says now we, we are to make every effort to supplement our faith. It's, isn't that the word add, or are we adding to our faith? Are we adding something to our faith? And, and in our minds, to some degree, we've been trained to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Isn't the way that this works is that faith is something that stands alone? That it's, it's only faith alone that, that saves us? And so how can we add anything to our faith? Okay? So just to be clear, what's being said here is that Peter, just like the rest of the New Testament writers, have it very clear in their mind, just like we do as a church, that salvation, the act of justification where you are being made right before the Father, happens solely by grace alone, the gift of God in your life, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There can be nor should be anything added to that for you to be justified before God. That's the way that this works. And we can affirm that in this passage, as he even states earlier, that that's the way this could. By the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Or as it says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it is, is by grace alone, in the sense that it is grace not by works, so that you cannot boast. You have played no part in the justification process. You're not adding anything to your justification. However, for those who have received Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there should be a natural outflow, an outworking of that reality in your life that has some things that are added to it, supplemented to it, further furnishing of those things. It's the same language we see all the time. Yes, you, you have been transformed. There has been a change, and that's happened to you through Christ. You've done nothing to participate in that. But now you need to be conformed into the image of Christ. And there's something additional that happens in that process. This word supplement, you can think of it as adding to your faith. You're supplementing, but you need to be careful not to think that this in any way replaces the faith component. 
you're supplementing the thing that stands as the most secure thing there. Just like a supplement you would take uh, after you eat. You don't just eat supplements all day and expect yourself to live. No, you have to still have a meal, and then you supplement your faith. Some of us don't do that well, and we don't eat very well, and we don't supplement very well, so maybe this is a better way of describing it. This word, in terms of supplementing your faith, think of it as furnishing or supplying, further furnishing or supplying your faith, giving it the robustness of what it needs to accomplish its intended purpose. For example, say you and your family, uh, you, you have not been in a home recently, say something happened, and uh, you, you need to buy a house, and to make it worse, you've been living with your in-laws, okay? And you really want to get out of there, and so you want to buy a house, and you finally, you go through the whole process, you find the right place for you and your family, it's going to be great for you, you're going to live your life there, you're going to do ministry there, it's going to be fantastic. You close escrow, you get the keys. In that moment, you have secured a dwelling place and a shelter for you and your family. You can go to sleep there, you can, you can be inside, it'll be sheltered from the rain, you've secured that location. It's there and you have it. But is that house really accomplishing the purpose that it's intended for without being fully furnished and supplied? I mean, what is the point of having a living room without a couch to sit in? What's the point of having a kitchen? Yeah, you have a place to cook if it's not fully supplied and stocked with food in the pantry and the fridge. What is the point of having a bedroom where you can go to sleep if it's not fully furnished with the bed and the sheets and the pillows that you need to get a good night's sleep? You see, your house has a bigger purpose and intent than just being a place of shelter. It's a place where you could show hospitality. It's a place where you can raise a family, where you could be comfortable. You can rest and be secure. And so, therefore, it needs to be fully furnished, equipped, and supplied. Well, for our faith to reach the full extent of what God intends for our faith, it is insufficient for us to think that once we become a Christian, we are fully equipped to do all that God asks us to do with that faith. No, we must now supplement, add, furnish, and supply our faith with specific traits so that we can accomplish all that God sets for us. Notice in the passage who the agent of action is, however, in this passage. We're so used to this idea of God is doing all the work, he's supplying it, and especially in our justification, we have it so locked in our mind, of course, God is the agent, he is doing this. But here in this passage, who's the agent? We are the agent. Peter is giving us a command and saying, you now, given what Christ has done without you, now you participate by making every effort. If we want our faith to be fully supplemented, supplied, equipped so that we would be effective, we have to do our part to maximize those spiritual gains in our life. So I want you to write our first point that way. You need to seek to maximize your spiritual gains. You have to seek to maximize those spiritual supplies and additions in your life to be an agent of your own sanctification to work and to have effort as you strive to be more like Christ. Now, right out the gate, someone is reaching in their pocket right now to throw a theological flag on the play, and they're saying, I want to debate this with you. Aren't there passages in the New Testament that say very clearly that even in our sanctification, God is the one doing the work? Isn't the reformed doctrine of this that God, God provides his justification by grace alone and faith alone and our sanctification is by grace alone and faith alone? I'd say it this way. The Bible, I think, is expressly clear, explicitly clear, that while justification is by grace alone through faith alone, our sanctification is a cooperative thing between us and God. We are working and God is working. We do not just sit back, let go, and let God We work, and God works. We strive, we push, we make every effort, and God supplies. I think if there's anyone that we could look to to say, how does this work? Who knows how this works? It would be the Apostle Paul. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let's just ask Paul this question. 
Because we know Paul, he understands justification. He wrote Romans and Galatians. He gets that. He knows it's faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. He gets that. He also writes a lot about sanctification. But we also know that Paul is a very useful and effective Christian. Maybe the most effective of all time. He did more for Christ in the time he lived than many of us can even dream of. So he was very effective. So how does he do this? How does he think about his responsibility and God's responsibility in this process? 1 Corinthians 15.10, very clear, says this, 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So right out the gate, he knows that the reason why he is, his identity that he has in Christ as a believer has nothing to do with himself. It is fully by the grace of God. 100% him, rode on Damascus, he had nothing to do with it. He was converted by a vision of Jesus Christ and the grace of God supplied for him through Christ made him a believer. By the grace of God, he is what he is. Then he says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Well, what does that mean? He's saying, well, his grace that he gave to me in justifying me, it wasn't wasted. It wasn't something that I, I, I threw out and discarded and cast it aside, and I just, I just relished in that reality and then did nothing. No, no, I, 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 it wasn't wasted, I was someone who committed to do something with that grace as a response to that grace. It says, it was not towards me, it was not in vain. On the contrary, then he says, I worked harder than any of them. He is now saying that because of the grace that God supplied in his life, he took up the personal commitment and resolve to apply his effort to the work. And he says that he worked harder than any of them. Who's he talking about? His contemporaries, the fellow apostles, Peter himself. He's saying, I labored, I worked, I expended every effort so that the grace of God supplied for me would not be in vain. Then he says in the very next line, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. And, and, and you're thinking in your head, okay, is he schizophrenic? Like, does he not understand what he's saying? Did he just say, I did all the work, I worked really hard, it wasn't me, God did all the work? I mean, is that, is that what's being said? And to some degree, the answer is yes. The way that this works in our sanctification, in compared to our justification, is that we work and God works. That we are in this together. He expects us to labor and strive for spiritual gains, for spiritual growth, for spiritual maturity in our life, and he, through our effort, is going to come along and supply everything so that we can't ever take credit fully for our work. We have to look and say, God, even though I was laboring, he responded by giving me those gains, by supplying what I need. He did that in me, but I worked. Think about it this way. If you know anything about building muscle, you know that your body has everything it needs in itself to build muscle. Your body knows exactly what to do when there is a breakdown of muscle. It knows how to synthesize that protein, supply it to your muscles. It's going to grow. It's going to do everything on its own. And it's going to do it while you're resting. It's going to do it while you're sleeping. That's how it's going to work. And it's going to feel like this, this magical process, right? But all of you know that really to gain muscle, you don't just sit back and do nothing. Though your body has all the ability to do it on its own, it requires that you put in effort and a lot of effort to tear those muscle fibers so they can be built back up. In some sense, that's what's going on with us in our sanctification. God is capable and able and has set it up that he will supply everything that we need, but he asks you to get into the gym and to work at it. He says, if you want those gains, if you want to grow, then you better strive and work at it. And when you do, I will come along and do all this work to supply you with what you need. And you'll be able to look and say, I worked harder, but it wasn't me, it was God. At the same time, God has designed our, our Christian life so clearly that we have to do something to grow. We can't just be passive in our sanctification, sitting back expecting that it's all gonna happen to us. 
We have to get out there, make commitments, resolves, and put in the work. And when we do, God is faithful to fulfill his promises that he will supply you with that growth. He will give you an increase in these attributes as you strive towards them. So here's a question that I have for you. If we're to expend every effort, and if we're to seek to maximize our spiritual gains, just to think for your life for a second, at what level are you expending yourself? What level of effort are you giving? Is it maximum effort? Or are you giving minimal effort? Or, or moderate effort? I mean, to what degree of commitment do you have to growing in this way? Have, have you agreed with, with the, the false theology that's out there that says you don't have to do anything? You just sit back, you rest, you don't do anything, and God will supply it. Neglecting verses like this that say, make every effort, I worked harder? Or are you committed to this text, to seeing this truth in God's word and saying, you know what, I do see that I have to apply some energy. So are you applying maximum energy or minimum energy? I mean, is your commitment even to this church just on the weekend? where you just sit here and listen to someone preach at you, or are you more deeply committed? Are you here more than once a week, more than twice a week? Do you have a serving post? Do you have a, a small group that you're in? I mean, is there a, a deeper level of commitment to see yourself grow through just what's happening here? I mean, are, are you that person that's like every day consistently neglecting the DBR, throwing it on in your phone, hitting the audio option as you drive your kids to school and try to get to work and you're half listening? Is that maximum effort for growth? Even if you're doing it consistently, are you, are you striving to improve your time? To take your, your, your devotional time in the morning and to open up a journal next to it and start writing down thoughts and you're, you're underlining, you're meditating, you're praying over verses, you're writing some things down. And you say, I want to memorize this and think about this. I mean, are you giving maximum effort to see yourself grow? Or is it just the bare minimum? I mean, have you detailed out goals, resolutions, things you want to achieve as spiritual growth items? I mean, we do it for everything. It's the new year. We've all done it for our health. We've all done it for our finances. We have family goals, relationship goals, we business goals. We specify. We write them out. I want to grow my business by this much. I want to lose this much weight, gain this much muscle. I want to make this much money. I want to go on this trip with my family. We, we all write it out. How many of us are applying even a moderate level of effort to saying and specifying, this is how I want to grow? I want to grow in this area, and this is how I'm going to do it. I am going to expend my effort to accomplish these things. I'm going to give it maximum attention and maximum effort. If we want to be in alignment with this passage, if we want to be in alignment with God's word, we have to really seek to align our lives, structuring our days, the people we hang out with, the time we spend with others, the amount of time we're at church engaging with other Christians, we have to think about our time that we use in order to maximize our spiritual gains in our life. Cannot just sit and wait for growth to happen in your life. And many of us are. Many of us have just gotten to the point where we say, I I'm going to grow as long as I just, if I just keep showing up, doing the bare minimum. Imagine how much you could grow. How, how much could be added into your, your spiritual life to supplement your faith for you to be effective if you applied more energy to it? And then God comes along and supplies all the need. Go with me briefly to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me just look at this passage real quick. I think that helps drive home this cooperation one more final time for us to, to belabor the point. First, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 is where we'll start says this, to this end, we always pray for you. Paul has a desire and a goal for the people that he's writing to in Thessalonica. And he says, the goal is this. We're praying that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Same idea we get here in Peter, that there's a, the gospel, and now you need to not be, be someone who takes that and, and it's in vain. No, you're worthy of it. Now you're conformed into the reality of what you have been made in Christ. And then it says this. Right? Did you be worthy of that? And that you may fulfill 
every resolve. You're, you're the one making the resolve. You're, you're, you're making resolutions. You're resolving to do something. What, what is the thing you're doing? To do good. And that you would do every good work of faith by his power. And so, even in this text, we see the way that this works is that we must commit. We must resolve. We must push to do the things that God asks us to do. And at the same time, we could recognize and must pray that God is the one that allows us to fulfill every resolve, to accomplish every good work by his power. But there is a cooperation between these two things. We all need to have a level of, of, of stated commitment in our own spiritual growth process where we can say, I'm committed to this. I want to grow. These are my goals. These are my spiritual growth goals and resolutions so that we can maximize our spiritual game. I would suggest if you've never done this that you would write them down. That even we, as we go through this list, you would highlight one or two things and you would put them somewhere. Somewhere where you can see them, somewhere you can remember them, put them in your Bible, in a journal, on a note app, on a sticky note on your computer so that you can say, here are some things that I'm going to work towards and give maximum effort towards. Now, I think it's helpful for all of us who've made goals and plans and resolutions in the past. It's, it's not very easy to accomplish those goals unless you have a plan, Right? It's, uh, it's, it's not easy to start the January 1st diet if you have no idea what food you're going to eat that cuts out all your favorite treats, right? You need to do some preparation and have a plan and know what it is you are working towards. What should you eat? What should you not eat on your diet? Well, in the same sense here, we need to know what the focus of our plan is. Our plan is. If we're going to focus maximum effort to see spiritual gains in our life, what are we supposed to be working towards, and that's where the passage take us, takes us to say, the things that you're to supplement your faith with, what are they? Well, here's the list again. Supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. That's the list. That's the action plan. That's the list of traits that God says, if you have these and they are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective. And so work to seek to maximize these particular traits in your life. Now, just, just to clarify, because I think, again, we tend to be confused in the Christian world sometimes about how this works. We tend to think that spiritual growth is all internal. That the, the way that this works is it's all theological, it's all in your head, it's all about what you believe, it's all about what your heart motives are, and that's all true. We do know that, that's, that there's a, a very true aspect, that there is an internal reality of our spiritual growth. But we need to be careful not to, to bifurcate the, the engagement that we have in the world, that we have within the church, that we have with others. Spiritual growth is not ever supposed to be something that is just relegated to an internal reality. So even as we read this list, this is not just internal traits. It's not just a list of things and how you think and feel, but it's how they express themselves outwardly towards others. It's how this works. It's both internal and external. It's, it's individual and intellectual, but it's also public and practical in the lives of other people. And, and just as an example of this, just think of Jesus' life and ministry. If there was someone who had maximum spiritual discipleship, he was the sanctified one, it was Jesus. His internal life was perfect. He never sinned. He was devoted. He, he was fully in line with God. But what did he spend the majority of his time doing while he had his ministry on this earth? It was not him just going off by himself and having internal thoughts, and opening up his scroll, and reading in the morning with his coffee, and thinking and meditating all day long. No, he was actively involved in expressing these attributes in the lives of the people that he was doing ministry to. Our sanctification is not just for us to feel better about our standing between us and God. It is to be used, to be effective, to make us ready for the engagements with people that God is going to place in our life. Our work that we're supposed to be working towards is not just internal work, but external work in the lives of people. So we need to pursue 
all these attributes that we just listed, not just for your own personal piety and benefit, but also for your own ministry readiness so that you can use these in other people's lives. So for point number two, I want you to write it this way. You need to pursue traits for ministry readiness. You need to pursue this list of traits to make you more apt to minister to people, that you would be ready and equipped and prepared and qualified to do the work that God calls you to do in the lives of people. Pursue traits for ministry readiness. So what are these traits? What are the things that we are to focus on? You've covered the list. Foundational qualities, and I think these are ordered in a specific order for us so that we can think through them and work on them in this order and to say, how do I fully furnish my faith? Well, here's the qualities. Let's go through the first two here. Virtue and knowledge. Virtue and knowledge. If you want to be more effective in your ministry to others and grow spiritually, you need to pursue with maximum effort virtue and knowledge. So what are those? Well, well, virtue is, is a word we don't use very often, but it's a word we should understand. It's essentially the word goodness. It's translated in other places, goodness. The idea here is talking about moral goodness. Really, what's being said is this is moral excellence. You should pr- pursue moral excellence, meaning that you are a person who does what is right. You're not a person who does what is wrong and what is sinful, but according to God's word, when he says, here's what I want you to do, you do it which means you are a person who is consistently forsaking sin in your life, getting rid of sin in your life, and being obedient to Jesus. It is a sense of moral virtue that we strive towards, and that is hard for us. There's something in us that we don't like to tell people. I mean, if you were to go up to someone this afternoon and someone say, what are your goals for the new year? And you say, I want to be morally excellent. They would look at you like you're some sort of prideful, pompous, arrogant person, but that's exactly what we're to strive for because we're to try to live consistently with the reality of the gospel of what has been done for us in Christ in the transaction of our justification. So now our sanctification, we are to model that kind of moral uprightness and holiness. And it's not just forsaking sin, getting rid of sin in your life. It's also doing what God asks you to do in the positive things. If he says, evangelize, evangelize. If he says, give, give. If he says, show hospitality, show hospitality. That we do what's right in obedience to God. Because we know, as James says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, that's also sin. And so we're not doing what's right. We do not risen to the level of moral excellence. If there's anything that will hinder your effectiveness in ministry to others, it's you having a moral failure. Even in your own head, if you know it, if you're sitting here and you're saying, how many times from this platform have I heard that I should forsake that sin and I still continue to do it? You're going to not be effective in ministering to others. You're not going to be a great and effective Christian because every time you open your mouth to say something to another person, that guilt of that reality is going to flood your life and you're going to say, man, I shouldn't speak. So you're not going to be effective. How many times have you heard from the platform, you, you need to be baptized, you need to go through partners, you need to be in a small group, you need, to, you need to be giving, you need to be doing all these things, and every time it comes up, there's this pang of guilt and shame, and you say, I'm not doing those things that I know are biblical commands from God's word, and I'm not doing them. And because of a lack of moral excellence in your life, of doing what is right, being obedient, you are ineffective. Every time an opportunity comes up, you're going to feel it. And you say, I'm not qualified. I can't do this. I'm not good enough. Well, it's true you'll never be perfectly morally righteous on this earth. But our goal should be that we strive to this end, that we forsake sin and work on our obedience to Christ. And thinking about the knowledge component, this is not just a statement of saying that you should just know information about God. This isn't like you're the best you know, at Bible trivia in your small group, and you, you're really good at the patio on throwing out theological factoids to people and using big words. That's not what type of knowledge this is. This is that your moral excellence, your virtue is informed. There is a level of depth to your understanding 
about what God is asking you to do that makes it so that you are further committed to do those things. It's a depth of understanding. As you peer into the life of Christ, the life of the apostles, and you learn from their example, you say, wow, I really fully grasp what it is that I should be committed to and why. Even getting to the place where we can say in our ministry context, when people come up to you and say, hey, why is it that you were able to walk through this situation the way that you did? Why is it that you were able to persevere through this temptation like you did? You have a depth of knowledge and understanding where you can give a defense for that. As it says in, 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 first, in, first Peter, or in uh, 1 Peter 3, that we need to be prepared to make a defense, that our knowledge should be deep enough that we're able to say, the reason why I pursue this course of action is because of this. Because the word says it here, and I see the example in this passage, and I've seen it modeled in my life by these people, and I know it's right. It will help you to pursue moral excellence when that moral excellence is informed. I know a lot of you, during the New Year's, you, you, you do what we all do. It's like 95% of the room. We're trying to be healthier this next year, right? That's what we all we're say. We want to be healthier this year. Some of us make commitments and we say, no, I'm not going to eat any sugar, right? I'm going to cut sugar out of my diet. Now, I just want you to think, that that's a good commitment. It's like, okay, I, maybe it's not good for me. I'm not going to have it. It's a good commitment. And you're saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be committed to it. I'm, I'm going to stick with it. What good is it? if uh, you make that commitment, but you're really only able to do it when you're at home because you've cleared out all the sugar from your house and when you're home, you can do it. You don't eat any sugar. But the second you go outside and you drive past the Dairy Queen, the, the temptation arises and your, your, your blinker's on. I mean, you're headed in. You, you come into the office and the box of Krispy Kremes is there and you're like, it would be rude of me not to have one. I mean, it's one thing to, to, to say, I have a commitment to it, I'm going to do it. But it's another thing to persist in the midst of temptations, complications, and time. The person that makes it six days into a New Year's resolution and not eat sugar and they're in the Dairy Queen drive-thru is not very impressive. But the person who commits January 1st and six months later, you ask them and they're still not eating sugar. And then another nine months later, oh, they haven't done it again. Oh, wow, you're really committed to this. How have you done that? Well, the way that they've done that is they've developed these additional traits that we need to develop to continue to pursue informed moral excellence, virtue, and knowledge. And that's self-control and steadfastness. You see, it's not sufficient for us just to say we're going to commit to it, we're going to work at it, if we can't persist at it and fight off temptations and go through hardships and opposition to us. If we can't make it over the long haul, then what's the point? And if you think about this in any regards to ministry, this makes perfect sense. If you're committed for three months, but the rest of the nine months you're not committed, no one's going to come tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, can you lead this ministry? Can you teach this group? Can you disciple me because I saw you do it for three months? No, they want consistency, commitment. And so we are asked to develop these attributes of self-control and steadfastness. Self-control is this idea that when uh, something tempts us, whether it's a desire from the flesh, something that's coming in from the world, we're able to say no. That's really what it is. We're able to drive past that Dairy Queen and say no. But the same is it's in, our, in our spiritual lives. We're able to have a temptation to disobey, to sin, or to refuse to do what God is asking us to do. And we're going to deny our desires at that point. We're going to say, you know what, self, I'm not going to do that. You know, my desire right now is to not speak up and talk to my neighbor who's not a believer. But you know what, I'm controlled enough that I'm going to say no to that desire. I'm going to speak up. You know, my desire is to look at something or to envy another person in such a way that it's sinful, but you know what? I'm not going to. I'm going to put the phone down. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go there in my, I'm going to control myself. And that this type of control has a lasting long-term effect in your life. It's not just happening for one week or two weeks or three weeks. You persist all the way through. You're steadfast. You persevere. You endure. 
as challenges and opposition come your way, you can keep going without failing. If, if you're a person that is, is in your mind saying, you know what, I don't, I don't think about self-control and steadfastness that much, or you're not sure you need these qualities in your life so much, I, I would say it this way. It's likely that if you don't feel the, the need for these, that you're probably not doing one of two things. You're probably not working hard enough. Because if you were working hard enough, you'd be getting weary. If you were giving maximum effort, you would have need for steadfastness and perseverance and endurance. If you were giving your maximum effort, you, you'd be tired. And you'd be like, wow, I, I really feel like I could use a break. I kind of want to throw the towel in right now. I, I don't really want to keep going because I'm, I'm just giving it my all all the time. Or it might be, you don't feel the need for this because maybe you're not committed to that moral excellence to the way you need to be, and so it's not a challenge for you because you're just, you're just not giving it your all. You're not fighting sin to such an extent that it's exhausting to you. And the people in your life, they're not even aware of what's going on, so it's not that big of a deal. All of us need to be people that long for self-control and steadfastness in our life. And we strive to do that. And we think of ways in which to do that. Even something as simple as fasting, denying ourselves the desire to eat, to do something for God, to pray, to petition Him, is an exercise of self-control. And if there's ever anything that is going to make you unqualified and ineffective for ministry, it's failing in this regard. I mean, say you make it for 10 years and you've got lots of things going on and you don't have any moral failures, but then all of a sudden in your, your 11th year you fail, what happens to your effectiveness? It goes down the drain. Think of any famous pastor out there who has had a long career of ministry and then had a moral failure. What happens to their ministry? to their effect, to their usefulness, to their impact. It goes away because they did not have self-control and they did not persevere. They were not steadfast. They did not make it through to the end. And so we need to seek and go after self-control and steadfastness. Let me read this passage to you. You don't have time to go there, but let me read this passage to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul, Paul says it this way. He says, to the weak I became weak that I might win the week. His goal is to do something for people. I've become all things to all people that my all means I might save some. His orientation is not just for himself internally to grow, but to get other people to see it. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? And everybody's going for it, everybody's running, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Like give it your maximum effort. In a race, only everybody's giving it their maximum effort. Run so that you may obtain it. And he says in verse 25, every athlete who does that exercises self-control in all things. They do it, the world does it, an athlete does it to, to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable one. So, he says, I do not run aimlessly without intent, without controlling myself. I do not box as one that's just beating the air. What's the point of that? No, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching, he's done all this good ministry, I myself would be disqualified. If you want to have the long-term, effective, useful ministry, like the apostle Paul has, then self-control and steadfastness need to be on your list to grow in. Because if you don't persist and you're not controlled in your own body, you could disqualify yourself. Now, I've used the analogy of eating well and, and the person that persists and is steadfast. And I just want to point out that, that all that sounds good, but what if in that analogy I just say, if you were to ask that person, what is the point of you doing all of this, stopping eating sugar, eating healthy, being good, and the person just walks up to you and say, because I want to look good. You say, well, because I want to be a supermodel. I, I want to get jacked. I want to get big. 
I want to I be buff. You kind of be like, okay, well, I mean, that's a motive, but is it the best motive? Is it the right motive to have? I mean, I think we would all say, you know, I think there's a better motive there. The better motive would be for you to be a good steward of your body, to try to be healthy so you can have longevity for your family, continue to provide, be there for them. That, that's a better motives. And so all these attributes, they're all something that you could see the Stoic philosophers and the ancient Greek philosophers saying, hey, these are good things, do these things. But now we do have to ask ourselves the question, why are we doing them? Why are we doing them? And that's where this next virtue comes in, and it's called godliness. And godliness points our minds to say, what is the point of all of this? What, what is my motive behind doing all of this? And, and the answer is, is that our motive is a godly motive. We are pursuing godliness in that we are giving God the glory and we are seeking to worship and be devoted to him. This is the idea of piety, a word we don't use very often, but it's a commitment, a level of devotion to God that drives our actions. All of us need to, on our list of things we grow in spiritually, need to have this idea of piety, godliness on there. Our motives are doing it for Christ in obedience to him, to worship him. That's the way we push forward in this life. So if we pursue moral excellence and it's informed and we know why we're doing it and we're working on self-control and we're going to persist and we're growing in steadfastness and we know the motive for why we're doing it and we're trying to honor Christ, be devoted to him, there should be a natural outcome of this. Where it's not all about you, your, your, your mind is off of you. Your thoughts and your intentions are not just directed on your growth and what you're doing and your connection with God, but the natural outflow of growing spiritually is that you would be committed to other people. And so the final two things that are listed here that are really the pinnacle, the real proof in the pudding of if you're growing spiritually is if you are increasing in brotherly affection and love. If you really want to evaluate your own spiritual life and say, hey, am I really growing? You can ask yourself this question. Do I really care about the people in this church like they're my own family? Do I have a genuine affection for them? Do I care for them? Do I long to see them, to be with them? And when needs arise in their life, am I willing to give of myself so fully that it's a sacrifice for me for their sake? If you're willing to say that my guess is that you've probably figured out the first few things on this list. And if you're not willing to say that, I would say you probably should work on the th first few things on this list because the natural outflow of the Christian that is growing is an increased brotherly affection and love, sacrificial love. I mean, think about the way that it's put in 1 John 4. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, there's no affection, no love for his brother, he is a liar, how can you say, I'm committed to God, I'm devoted to him, I want to be godly, I'm committed to personal spiritual growth and holiness for God's sake and not to love your brother? It doesn't work. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him, of Jesus, whoever loves God must also love his brother. If you are a person that says, I am committed to growing spiritually, then you must, you have to be committed to loving and caring for others, especially in the church. Now, let me just say this. How can you do this, church, if you're not around your brothers and sisters, if you're not committed to them, if you don't know them, if you're not in environments constantly with them, if you're not following up with them, if you're not face-to-face -face with them, how can you grow in this area? If this is the pinnacle area, if this is the thing that's always at the top of the list, love. Love for others. Not just those in your household, but those in the, 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 the church household. God's household. How can you do that if you're not connected here? Uh, we're always standing on this platform and we're always pushing you to further commitment. We're saying, please, would you just sign up for a subcongregational ministry be a part of an HFG, have a small group where you're face-to-face, -face. get into a serving post so that you could be with other Christians serving them, right? We're always pressing our church to say, you know, we want you to grow here. 
This is to your detriment if you don't do this. Is it going to be a benefit to the church? Yeah, but that's a benefit to people. If you want to grow in brotherly affection and love, then, then you need to get into the gym where that's going to happen. Don't expect to grow if you never get in the building. There needs to be a, a commitment and bond to the people inside the church like there is in your own household, like you would to your own family. As I said before, I'll say it again. I think that it's wise of you to take these list of attributes, to evaluate them, and I'll ask you to do that in the questions this week in your small groups, but to evaluate them and say, which one of these things am I lacking in and make it a priority in your life to give maximum effort to that thing. But even in the midst of that, you should identify, how can I be around God's people more to practice this idea of brotherly affection and love? Familial affection, care, genuine concern, love, care, sacrifice for others. And to write it down and say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to commit to this this year. I'm going to make a commitment. Make a commitment to be here, participate, join a group, do something. And then write down some of these qualities that you need that come above in that list and say, you know what, I'm going to put these here. I'm going to look at them. And I'm going to have them in a place where I can go back and regularly evaluate them. Well, why do we need to do that? Because back to our passage, just look at how it's phrased one final time. All these qualities that you should possess that are going to be make you more effective in ministry, more ready to do the work that God's called you to do, if these qualities are yours, meaning you possess them, you can make a list and say, I am steadfast, I love my brothers. Like you, you can go through and say, I possess these to a degree. Okay? But then the next line, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, it is insufficient for you just to have these qualities and not have them be increasing. They need to be increasing. You need to be growing. And so the only way for you to keep growing in these is to keep them in front of your face and continue to evaluate yourself in terms of these traits and say, okay, I need to work on this again. I need to keep pushing, keep striving, keep moving forward. So I want to say it this way for point number three. You need to regularly evaluate your progress in these areas. Regularly evaluate your progress. Put these things down and think about them often. You cannot just make this a checklist that you check once. I grew today in self-control, check. Always increasing, progressing in these areas. So let me give you a few tips as we wind down here. How do you do this? First of all, I'd say you need to have a way of individually assessing this on yourself. Sometime during your DBR, in your day, some specified time, you need to be internally reflective and say, am I growing in these areas? Set some time aside personally as an individual to assess these realities in your life. And this is a biblical concept. Galatians 6, let each one of us test our own work. And then we will have reason to boast in ourselves. We'll have some sense. We say, you know what? At least I, I gave it a fair effort and a shot. And so we need to test what we're doing. We need to evaluate it, consider it on an individual level. After your DBR, pull the list up and think and pray and meditate on these things and say, am I growing? But we can also reach outside of ourselves and grab people to keep us accountable. All of us can reach out to someone in this room, in your small group, in your family, in your household, and say, hey, I'm trying to grow in self-control this year. It's my goal. I want to be more self-controlled. To deny myself, can you keep me accountable? You need to have people in your life as a believer who know you well enough, who can call you to the carpet on an issue if you're not doing it, and can see you grow because they know you well enough. If you don't have those people in your life, you need to be more committed and connected to people. You need to have that accountability in your life. And then you need to think about just your routines. Are you setting up your environment in such a way that you're being forced to be confronted with the realities of these things? I mean, do you recognize the value of sitting and reading your Bible every single morning? Is that it's going to force you like a mirror to look at your life and say, am I doing this? I mean, even this morning, reading our DBR, reading through the Sermon on the Mount, how could we not look at that and say, am, am I doing these things? 
I mean, do I pray anything like Jesus asked me to pray? Am I anxious like Jesus says I'm anxious? Do I need to grow in my trust in the Lord? I mean, it's a forced tool for us to grow. You need to put yourselves in situations where you're going to be forced to be confronted with these truths. It's why we come to church. It's why we're in small groups. It's why we read our Bibles. That's why we take a class at CBI so we can learn more information so that we're forcing ourselves to be confronted so that we can grow so that it's not in vain and we can serve Christ as he calls us to serve him, be more effective. There is a big value for us going over and over and over these attributes so that we would continue to grow in them. And we should all do that. There, there is a group of people that I think really exemplify the level of commitment that I'm, I'm calling for here in this sermon. I mean, these are people that are just like so committed to their task and they go back and they review it and they're always thinking about it and they spend time and money and energy to accomplish their task. They want to get better and better and they talk about it. It's just, it's all consuming and they love it. You know who those people are? Golfers. I don't know any golfers who are just not like obsessed with getting better at golfing. Like they, they want to grow and they, they will spend so much time and energy to do this thing. And golfing, if you know, is extremely difficult. I've golfed like twice. I'm not a golfer. If you like golfing, I'm not trying to hate on you. Go golf. That's fine. But I'm just using this as an example. Every little thing, the amount of things you have to think about to golf and work on and improve is insane. I mean, I went golfing one time, and it's like, you're holding the, the, the club wrong. Move your hands up three centimeters. I'm like, I don't even know what a centimeter is. I'm an American. Um, you know, change the degree of your elbow. I'm like, what? Pivot your foot this way. I don't know what's happening. There's so many things. And then, and then it's like, oh, you gotta, your, your follow-through is not good, or your backstroke's not good. Or you got to work on your positioning here of your hips. So, oh, wow, there's so many things. And then I don't know any golfer that's not also just like obsessed with gear, like they're just complete gearheads. Like they spend all day long, uh, like on their phone, like, oh, if I could just had that club, you know, that'd make me better. You know, if I could just get this shoe or these sunglasses, I'd see better on the course. And that would just help me improve on the course. And there's so much time and energy and effort given to it. And, and I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not hating on the golfers here. I'm just as an example. If that's the level of energy and effort that we go into for a hobby, and say that's not your hobby, you have another one or a sport, or activity that you love, and you go to that level of commitment to see it through, to get better, to improve your score, to do something. And think about it with golf. You're doing all that energy and effort to take a ball and put it in a hole. That's what you're doing, just to be clear. Again, nothing wrong with golfing, but that's what you're doing. Think about what God is asking us to do. He's saying, I have saved you, I have justified you by the blood of my cross. I have redeemed you from this earth, and that should not be in vain, because I have purposed for you work to do in ministry, in people's lives, and I want you to do that work, but for you to do that work, I need you to expend a considerable amount of effort in working in cooperation with me to accomplish that goal. I need you to spend time, to put energy, to be committed, to review, to evaluate. I need you to be committed to this at the same level that I was committed to you. Because I saved you and redeemed you, now you do not take that and waste it and let it be in vain. No, now you pursue spiritual growth in your life so that you can be effective for me. We all should be believers who recognizing the reality of the gospel can say, all in unison, I give it my all with every ounce of my effort to be in alignment with these values and priorities to see them grow in my life so that in so doing, God would use me, use me as an effective Christian in his hands for his glory. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for our salvation, knowing so clearly from your word that it is not a work of our own. It is fully by your grace and your mercy and your love to us. And God, we don't want to be people, a church of believers that squander what it is you've done for us. God, help us 
to not waste the gift of new life that you've given us, but to work with all of our effort and our might to be prepared for the work that you have prepared in advance for us to do. God, we trust that you are faithful to supply us with the growth when we labor alongside of you in this work. And God, we pray that you would give us success, give us great ability to, to care and love for other people and help us to grow in each and every one of these areas that we discussed today. God, I pray for this church. I pray that we would be committed to these things this year and that by doing so, we'd become more useful to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.